Hello there, misfits. This is Kate. And this is Matthew. <laughs> Welcome to Horrorwood. Welcome to Horrorwood. I have a special guest in the pod closet so today. So special. I'm so special. I'm so happy to be here. I'm Thrilled th- even. I'm glad for it. Uh-huh. Uh, Kevin is currently asleep. Asleep. And <laughs> or is... under the weather. Not no, he's sure. not under the oh, weather. Oh, he's not under the weather. He's just asleep. He's just asleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's even better. He got in late from a work trip, like an out-of-state, several-day-long work trip last night, and he texted me this morning and was like, He's like, hey. I'm out, dog. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm out. Peace out. And I was like, I got you. I will make my boyfriend do it. <laughs> here I am. Here you are. Thank you for being here. Happy to be here. I mean, you've Thrilled. been here. I mean, I, I, live, live here. I live here. This is where I live. So it was easy for me to get here. Which is wonderful yeah. since it's so cold outside. It's very cold. I don't I don't like going outside in the cold. You know who really doesn't like going outside in the cold? Frankie. Francis. Francis does not like the cold. She does not. Nope. She's a dog. Her little paws. A teeny tiny dog. Yeah. Uh, before we get into this case, I do have a little biz nasty to cover. Mm-hmm. We have a new misfit murderino. <laughs> Renata Hoggard. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Thank you so much. She is our newest uh, misfit murderino subscriber over on the Patreon. And we so appreciate your support. Kevin appreciates your support, even though he's not here to say it himself. And you join just in time, Renata, because Kevin and I are going to be sending out a little, very small, little February Valentine hello, if you will. Exciting. So look for a little something in the mail. It's not going to be like the Halloween package. This is just like a small little thing. But if you are one of our $5 subscribers and you've opted in for gifts and your address is on the Patreon, then you'll be getting something in the mail in February. That sounds pretty delightful, Kate. And you know what it is. I do know it. what it is. It's cool. I mean, let's not hype it up. Too I mean, much. It's very small. I'm not hyping it up. It's just, it's a cool, it's a very nice, cool gesture. Okay, good. I'm glad. Yeah. So today we are talking about something that's not very cool. A pretty horrific murder that took place at L.A.'s silent movie theater. Ooh. Larry Austin had three loves in his life. Murder, she wrote. His cat named Sir Purity and silent films. On the Friday evening of January 17th, 1997, around 60 people entered the silent movie theater on Fairfax Avenue in Los Angeles where smiling theater owner, 74-year-old Larry Austin, greeted them and sold them their tickets. The silent movie theater was an institution in Los Angeles that attracted a lot of regulars, people who showed up every week to watch silent films. I've seen it. I have never been in, but I've seen it. I have been in. Which I think I talk about later yeah. in the episode, but, but I've only been there once. But yeah, it's it's kind of like a, a landmark yeah. in L.A. 
This theater was unique because no other movie theater existed that showed only silent films, not in this country anyway, and according to Larry, not in the world. There is a movie theater in Brussels, the Cinematheque, that regularly shows silent films, but I don't think that's all they show. I think they do some talkies as well. The silent movie theater in Los Angeles was truly one of its kind. So it attracted a loyal fan base, and Larry knew all the regulars because he was always there greeting customers and manning the box office. This particular night in January was an evening of joy and excitement because Larry was celebrating the sixth anniversary of the theater's opening since he had taken over as its owner. The theater had been around for decades, and we'll get into its history in a Mm -hmm. bit. 19-year-old Mary Giles was manning the concession counter that evening, where she sold customers their snacks and their drinks before they headed in to take their seats. Once everyone was seated, the owner, Larry, did what he did before every movie screening. He walked down the aisle as organist Dean Mora played Pomp and Circumstance. (laughs) And the reason he did this is because he'd heard that Sid Grauman pumped pomp and circumstance through the speakers at Grauman's Chinese Theater. And he was like, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that. <laughs> that's ridiculous. And, and kind of amazing. Like, it really did get people excited yeah. about the show. Like, it kind of started out as a joke, uh-huh. but it was like the thing that people were like, oh, it's starting. You know what I mean? Yeah. People like those traditions. Yeah. He made his way to the front and introduced the films to the audience. And that evening, he was showing three shorts. The first was a Felix the Cat short, which was kind of a tradition there Uh before he took over. Felix the Cat was always the first thing that was shown. The second was The Golf Bug. And the third was a short called School Days, followed by the feature and Larry's personal favorite silent movie, Sunrise. Around 8.30 p.m., while School Days was playing... One of the moviegoers got up from his seat and went out to the lobby. Mary, at concessions, was reading a book at the time because obviously no one's buying candy while the movie is playing. Yeah. So she's just passing the time. When this patron asked to speak to the manager, he was like, hey, I want to buy a ticket in advance for an upcoming show. So Mary gets Larry's attention, who by then was at the box office counting their sales for the evening. As Larry approached, the customer pulled out a gun and demanded cash. Larry obliged. He grabbed a bag. He started filling it with money. But before he could even finish stuffing the cash into the bag, the gunman shot Larry in the head directly in the right eye. Oh, my God. The gunman then turned to 19-year-old Mary Giles and shot her in the chest at point-blank range. Both victims fell to the ground, and the shooter turned the gun on Larry again and shot him two more times, once in the chest and the other in the thigh. What? And the thing that's weird is that like, he wasn't putting up any resistance. He was putting yeah. the money in the bag when this went down. Patrons inside the theater heard the gunshots, but initially they thought it was fireworks. Maybe it was part of the anniversary festivities, or maybe it was sound effects for the movie. But all of a sudden, the gunman comes charging through the theater, firing shots in the dark. Oh, my gosh. As soon as people realized what was happening, they quickly moved from their seats to to the ground, trying to duck for safety. And although the gunman wasn't wearing a mask to disguise his face, no one in the theater got a good look at him because, one, it was dark, and two, they're trying to stay low and not be seen so he doesn't shoot them. Thankfully, none of the moviegoers inside the theater were physically hurt. 
That's not a big theater, too, from what no, I know No, it's about small. It. It's small. The gunman then ran through the back door, which was like an exit door on the uh-huh. side of the theater, and exited out into the alley. And what's wild is he left without the bag of cash. What? So when officers arrived at the scene, they found the money. It was less than $500, and a lot of the bills had blood on it. Larry Austin was pronounced dead at the scene, but Mary was still breathing. However, she was beginning to lose consciousness, so paramedics are doing everything they can to save her. Uh She was rushed to Cedars-Sinai Hospital in critical condition. Meanwhile, LAPD Deputy Chief Alan Hamilton and LAPD Detective John Miller assessed the scene. There was blood everywhere. The floor, the concessions counter. It's not a big lobby, so blood got on pretty much everything. Uh Some witnesses commented that they didn't know the human body could even contain that much blood. Oh my gosh. If you're saying that, there must have been an enormous amount of blood. A lot. When officers saw the cash that had been left behind, they began to think this was not an experienced criminal. Perhaps it was someone who tried to rob the place and panicked and fled without the money. Several of the moviegoers stood outside and talked to the officers because most of them knew Larry and Mary. Many of them were crying. They were in shock. You could tell that they were visibly shaken. The ones that were able to speak told detectives what they'd seen and heard. How after the gunman fired shots in the lobby, he came running through the theater, shooting before exiting out the back. This struck the detectives as odd because why would someone who was trying to rob the place shoot two people at point blank range? Like that escalated so quickly. Leave without the cash and then run through a theater full of people where he could possibly be seen by several witnesses. Yeah, that makes no sense. It was weird. But unfortunately, as I mentioned before, no one was able to make out his facial features. Detectives Hamilton and Miller began walking through the theater where the audience had been sitting, and they noticed that up on one of the walls were a couple of what looked like bullet holes from where the gunman had fired wildly into the dark. Uh Uh-huh. James Van Sickle, who was the projectionist for the theater, got a ladder for the detectives so they could examine the holes a little closer. And not only were they able to confirm that they were, in fact, bullet holes, but a bullet was still lodged in the wall. From that, they were able to determine the type of gun that was used, which was a 357 Magnum revolver. So they know that much. But aside from that, there wasn't much evidence at the scene to go on. Mm-hmm. They had a fingerprint technician dust for prints, but they didn't find any forensic evidence that could be immediately identified. Detectives interviewed that projectionist, Van Sickle, who seemed very upset, and he was able to give some background info on both Larry and Mary because he'd worked at the theater for quite some time. But from everything detectives were getting from those that had been at the theater that night, nothing suggested that anyone would have a vendetta out for either victim. Mary was this innocent teenager. Larry was this 74-year-old man who just loved silent films. And With enjoyed... a cat named Sir Purity, Sir too. Purity. Come like, on. Who would have anything yeah. out for him? And he just enjoyed running this unique little theater. And since no one at the scene had gotten a look at the shooter, detectives knew their only chance of getting a description of the guy was Mary. Around 6 or 7 in the morning, just a few hours after the shooting... Detectives Hamilton and Miller arrived at Cedar sinai and they weren't even sure if Mary had survived the night. They thought if she had, she was likely in surgery, and there was a good chance she wouldn't remember any details, but it was their only hope. 
Amazingly, when they reached Mary's room, not only was she alive and awake, but she was standing up and talking with family members. Whoa. Physically, she was doing great. The bullet had entered her chest, gone around her rib cage, and through her shoulder, and miraculously did not hit any vital organs. Oh my gosh. But she was definitely shaken, and the first thing she did was ask, how's Mr. Austin? When Detective Miller told her he didn't make it, she got really upset because she really liked Larry. Sure. Despite having just experienced this traumatic event, Mary remembered everything about that night, including what the shooter looked like. Go Mary. Mary is a real hero in this story. Without her being able to recollect everything, I don't know that this case would have ever been solved. She didn't know the shooter. He wasn't one of the regulars, and she described him as a Hispanic male with dark hair holding a revolver. She was able to describe what he was wearing. She was able to provide a lot of information. So snaps for Mary. Yeah. The case attracted a lot of media attention. Filmmakers, movie critics, performers, people from all over knew Larry, were friends with him. The silent movie theater had been around for decades, and he was the one that gave it new life. And to be gunned down in his own theater, which was this iconic little gym in L.A., it was a big story. America's Most Wanted contacted the detectives and said, hey, we'd like to profile this case. Maybe we can help find the killer. So the detectives were like, yeah, sure, we'll take all the help we can get. Detectives Hamilton and Miller gave interviews. The projectionist, James Van Sickle, that had been there that night, he also gave an interview talking about Larry, just how he couldn't think of anyone who would want to hurt him or that Mm -hmm. would want him dead, or Mary for that matter. And since Mary Giles had a good recollection of what the shooter looked like, America's Most Wanted offered up the help of one of their forensic artists, Jeannie Boylan. Jeannie Boylan has worked on some of the biggest cases in the world. Polly Class, the Oklahoma, the Oklahoma, the Oklahoma, the Oklahoma, <laughs> Oklahoma, the Oklahoma City bombing, the Unabomber. I could go into a whole episode wow. on her. So she got some skills. She has some serious skills. I'm going to post a link to an interview she did with CNN. It'll be in the show notes where she talks about how she's able to get such accurate drawings based on what victims tell her. Because that is what she's known Ooh, for. Look that up. Her sketches are incredibly lifelike. I mean, I often feel like if I was in that situation, I would be describing people that I know that they kind of resemble. Mm. But I feel like for an artist, that might be a trap. Too. I, I don't. I don't know. I'm very interested to to look at that link. Um, it's yeah. It's really. And she also wrote a book. Um, that maybe I'll link that too. I didn't originally, but I'll. I might add that. Because she talks about how a lot of like officers will kind of lead the victim, mm-hmm. and it's that power of, of suggestion that makes people remember things that weren't quite accurate. Mm-hmm. She does not do that. She gets to know the victim, she gains their trust. And she said it's their emotional connection to the traumatic event that is what sparks their memory. And it's just kind of Uh, connecting into that emotion. uh And it's not about suggesting anything or what have you. Like her sketch of the Unabomber is very famous. And it looks so much like him that Ted Kaczynski uh, broke his, I believe if I'm remembering the story correctly, broke his nose so that he would not look like that sketch. Because it was so spot on. Wow. 
Uh, so Jeannie sat down with Mary to talk about the night of the shooting. And from that, she was able to create a spot on sketch of the shooter. So spot on, in fact, that when a young man by the name of Christian Rodriguez was out driving with a friend of his, his friend happened to have the paper with that composite sketch on it. It was on the front page. And the friend said, dude, this sketch looks just like you. And Christian Rodriguez said, that is me. I'm the killer. So why might this man, 19-year-old Christian Rodriguez, want 74-year-old Larry dead? Let's take a closer look at Larry. Lawrence, or Larry, Austin, was born on February 5, 1922, in Orange County, California, to parents Ethel and Irvin. At some point during his childhood, they did move to Los Angeles because by the time Larry was in high school, he was living in L.A. Uh Ethel is said to have been very protective of Larry, always wanting to shield him from how cold and harsh the world could be. And for Larry, that harshness came from his own father. Irvin was a strict military man, and this is the 1920s. Men were expected to act a certain way. So when Irvin realized that his son Larry was gay and didn't fit into the idea of what a man was, quote unquote, supposed to be in his eyes, Mm -hmm. rather than respond with love, Irvin bullied and abused his son. Homosexuality was unacceptable to Irvin. So growing up, Larry really struggled with his own identity and also finding a place where he felt safe. Sure. Not to mention... He was raised Mormon and oh, Republican. Oh, and double whammy. Keep in mind, this is the early part of the 1900s. So those ideologies, along with the time period, didn't exactly do Larry any mm-hmm. favors. But surprisingly, he remained both Mormon and Republican throughout his entire life. Really? Whereas Irvin was this militant bully toward his son, Ethel went the complete opposite extreme and sort of coddled him. Larry's dad died when Larry was in his 20s, and he continued living with his mom into his 40s. Wow. Aside from his mother, there were few places Larry felt safe. Enter John and Dorothy Hampton. The Hamptons were a married couple that had moved to L.A. from Oklahoma. John Hampton loved silent movies and the movie business in general. As a boy, he and his brother Gilbert collected silent films and would host movie nights for their family and friends. And when he got older, it seemed only natural to head to Hollywood and do the thing he loved in the town where the movies were made. His wife, Dorothy, thought he was the bee's knees and happily relocated with him. His dream became her dream. The two were in this together. They were either going to succeed together or fail together. I like your socks. Thank you. Your mom gave them to me. Oh, I like those. The couple bought a small lot on Fairfax Avenue and built their theater from the ground up. They were very hands-on. They were pouring concrete. They were hauling in wheelbarrows full of bricks. So when I say they built it, they They literally built it. They also built a small apartment for themselves above the theater where they lived. So a real Mm -hmm. work-from-home situation. And on February 25th, 1942, the Hamptons opened the silent movie theater. I read that Larry's parents were friends with the Hamptons, though I didn't find any accounts of the two couples hanging out. The theater also happened to be very close to Fairfax High School, which is where Larry reportedly attended, although by the time the theater opened, I think he might have already graduated. Regardless of how he became acquainted with the Hamptons, Larry soon found himself attending the theater regularly to watch silent films. 
John Hampton, the owner, went to great lengths to collect and restore the old movies. By the 1940s, talkies were in. Silence, as they were often called, were considered a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. A lot of the studios had destroyed their silent films or were giving them away, which is how Hampton was able to acquire some of his collection. And he also relied on private collectors. Silence were made using nitrate film, which was highly flammable and extremely sensitive to temperatures, which causes the film to degrade over time. And it can also spontaneously combust. So the business of silent films was not exactly a sustainable one. And once talkies became popular, it's easy to see why studios were eager to get rid of their collections, especially since several film storage facilities had been known to go up in flames. That's a small problem. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. But John Hampton had a passion for silent film. He would spend years acquiring different versions of a movie, then he would cut the best parts out of each version and dye the frames to make sure they all matched to create the best possible version of that film. Whoa. His bathtub became a makeshift film laboratory where he'd spend his days working with chemicals to dye and develop the nitrate film. People still came to the theater even though silent movies were dying out. Reportedly, celebrities like Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford would sometimes sneak in and watch their own films in the really? back row. Yeah. The theater attracted its share of regulars, one of which was Larry Austin. He loved silent movies, but I think it also became a safe haven for sure. him away from his abusive father. He became friends with the Hamptons, even going on vacations with them occasionally. Larry trained to be an accountant, though not a whole lot is known about his career before he took over the theater. However, as detectives investigating his murder dug into his past, they did learn that in 1972, when Larry was around 50 years old, he got caught embezzling $6,000 from a barber shop and was sentenced to five years probation. Whoa, Larry. Larry, what are you doing? A few years later, in 1980, the Hamptons temporarily closed the theater. No one knew why, and whenever they inquired, the response from the Hamptons was that they hoped to reopen soon. One story was that John was busy cataloging his film collection. Another was that the Hamptons were preparing to make some necessary renovations to the place, perhaps clean things up a bit. It's said that the apartment the Hamptons lived in upstairs was covered wall to wall with film reels and film restoration supplies. I thought you were about to say was covered wall to wall with filth. Well, kind of. <laughs> oh no. They were also pack rats and it was impossible to find anything in that apartment. I'm not sure how they were able to live in those conditions. During this time that the theater was closed, the Hamptons became reclusive. Meanwhile, the following year, in 1981, Larry was caught embezzling yet again. Larry? He was working for a travel company, and one day his boss walked in and saw Larry, like, counting money on the sly. Like, the money was in a drawer, and Larry's sitting there with his hands in the drawer and his head down, like, clearly trying to conceal what he was doing. And when his boss asked, um, what the hell's going on here, Larry quickly shut the door and locked it and was like, nothing to see here. Larry. Ooh, Larry. Uh, he was found guilty of embezzling more than $42,000. 
And that's in 1981. Today, that's the equivalent of more than $140,000. That's a lot of money. He ended up serving two years in prison. Oh, wow. When detectives Hamilton and Miller learned of this, they enlisted the help of Detective David Harned, who worked in the Financial Crimes Division of the LAPD. They wanted to see if maybe Larry had been embezzling money again. Maybe he had crossed the wrong person. Mm -hmm. It's believed that the Hamptons were unaware of Larry's crimes and the fact that he served time because, like I said, they'd become reclusive and Larry wasn't stopping by because the theater was closed. It would seem the real reason for the closure was that John Hampton was ill, likely caused by years of breathing in toxic chemicals of nitrate film and the materials used to dye the film. The Hamptons began selling off their extensive silent film collection, a sign to the public that the closure was not temporary, as they'd hoped. John Hampton died from lung cancer in 1990. Upon his death, his wife Dorothy handed over the management of her finances to Larry, despite the objections of her minister, of John's brother. They were like, why are you going to let this guy who is of no relation to you? He's basically just a guy who's been hanging around the theater for years. Uh Why are you turning over your financial affairs to him? It's very plausible that Dorothy knew Larry was a trained accountant and thought he would be perfect, the perfect person to handle her affairs. And it does seem that he had formed a genuine friendship with the Hamptons over the years. However, rumors began swirling that Larry had taken advantage of the fact that Dorothy herself was becoming increasingly ill and was suffering the effects of Alzheimer's disease. Larry said to Dorothy, hey, I'd like to get the theater back up and running. Would you be okay with me taking over the place? And she loved the idea. So he got to work sprucing the place up. He installed a new sound system, put up new artwork, hung up new curtains in front of the screen that would open as the movie started. Mm -hmm. He had a new projection system installed and gave the place a fresh coat of paint. And one of the painters he hired was James Van Sickle, who, like so many people, once he experienced the silent movie theater, he just stayed, becoming one of the projectionists. Larry gave the theater a new life. January 18th, 1991 was the grand reopening, and he turned it into an event. There were spotlights, there was a lot of fanfare, he gave a big speech at the beginning and hired a live organist to do the music for the films. Mm -hmm. Previously, when it was owned by the Hamptons, John would play records to accompany the movie, which didn't really work. Larry knew that the theater needed a live organist because silent films work best with live accompaniment, and he hired the best of the best. Bob Mitchell, Dean Mora, he, like, these were top guys. And in the beginning of Larry's tenure, Dorothy actually worked alongside him. He would sell the tickets, and she would take the tickets as people headed in to get their seats. So despite however it was that Larry got Dorothy's blessing, she did seem genuinely thrilled that he wanted to keep the theater going. Eventually, she signed the theater over to him, giving him full ownership of not just the building, but everything in it, all the equipment and what was left of the film collection, which in total was valued at around $3.5 million. At that time, she was living in a convalescent home, and the public guardian's office tried to have the deed annulled, stating that Larry Austin had manipulated her for it. Nevertheless, Larry remained the official owner of the theater. Of those who worked for Larry and those who were friends with him, they all said the same thing about him. 
he wasn't exactly an honest guy. <laughs> David. <laughs> oh, that is not what you want people to say about you. What do you think of Kate? Well, she's not a liar. <laughs> she's not exactly honest. <laughs> David Slaughter, which is such an unfortunate name for an innocent man connected to a murder. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it is. He was another projectionist at the theater, and he said, quote, Larry would rarely tell the truth when a lie would suffice. Oh, man, Larry. And Larry would often ask David to back him up in the lie. David said he was very difficult to work for, but at the same time, he really liked him. Almost like it became this endearing quality about Larry, like you never were quite sure what to believe. For one thing, whether talking to the audience as he was introducing a film or giving an interview about the theater, Larry often talked about his theatrical roots, telling people that both his dad and uncle had been silent film actors, even stating one or the other was starring in the film he was about to screen. And he gushed that his mom had been Cecil B. DeMille's personal tailor. But none of that was true. What? Larry. His mom was a seamstress, but not for Cecil B. DeMille. And his father was a gardener by trade. It's like he felt like he had to create this background story, Uh not only as a way to fit into this Hollywood ideal, but also as a way, I think, to create a past that was more tolerable than what he actually lived. And he always spoke very proudly about these Hollywood roots that didn't exist. There's actually nothing more Hollywood. (laughs) That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Another thing is part of how he added to his film collection was sometimes he would borrow films from studios and then copy them illegally. Then he'd call up a peer of his and offer to sell him this illegal copy. And he would send David, the projectionist, to Bob's Big Boy in Burbank (laughs) and be like, hey, you're looking for a blue pinto. Give the driver this envelope. He'll give you an envelope in return. It was very shady. But David wouldn't ask questions. He'd just be like, okay. Larry wanted to monopolize the silent film market. He was very (laughs) secretive about his collection. He'd claim to own rare films and promise to screen them one day, but he never owned them and, of course, never screened them. And if there was a film festival going on that featured silent films, Larry would try to outdo it by doing this huge screening at his theater on that same weekend He would show like his best, most rarest films, trying to steal audiences. His whole thing was, I've got to beat the competition, which is a weird flex when you really think about it to be like, well, more people showed up to watch my movies than these other movies. (laughs) Larry was also disgusted by the fact that John Hampton had kept a secret stash of pornos in his film collection for his own personal use. Oh, John Hampton. So whenever Larry would find one, he would destroy it. Yet at the same time, he reportedly hired sex workers to meet him at the theater where he would use their services. So there's quite a dichotomy going on. Oh, wow. Larry is a very complicated fellow. He is. He seemed very uncomfortable in his sexuality. He would insist to David, David Slaughter, that he was straight. And he'd talk about the women he'd been with and so on, so on. But then with others, he was very open about being gay and would discuss the sexual encounters he'd had. David said he never understood why Larry always pretended to be straight in front of him. 
It just seems mm. like Larry was, you know, dealing with some inner uh, yeah, I think demons. I would say with the the background you described with his dad, it mm-hmm. all goes back to that kind of shame and yeah. abuse. Everyone knew that Larry was gay, whether he realized they did or not. And Larry's sexuality became very apparent whenever James Van Sickle was in the room. Larry's eyes lit up when James was around. James was about half Larry's age. I believe he was about 29 when he started working for Larry. And before long, James and Larry were living together in the tiny apartment above the theater. Detectives learned of their relationship while interviewing Van Sickle. They brought him in because when they looked into Larry's finances, Detective Harned had obtained search warrants for Larry's accounts and saw that money was being withdrawn even after Larry had died. Detective Harned contacted the bank and had them freeze the account, and that's when he learned that there were two names on it, Larry's and James Van Sickle's. Mm. When detectives asked Van Sickle about this, he told them that he and Larry were actually business partners in the theater. And they were like, "Mm, that's weird, because when we first talked to you, you just said you were the projectionist. You didn't think to mention that you and Larry were business partners? And Van Sickle explained that he was, in fact, the business manager and needed them to unfreeze the accounts because he was still trying to operate the theater and there were expenses that needed to be paid. And then he got really emotional. And that's when he opened up to them that he and Larry had been lovers at one time, but that the relationship ended amicably. And it was after that that Larry asked Van Sickle to be his business partner. He even had a will, supposedly handwritten by Larry on a cocktail napkin, (laughs) listing Van Sickle as the sole beneficiary should something happen to him. Of course. So detectives think to themselves, cool, 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 we should probably look further into James Van Sickle. And they found a lot. James Van Sickle was a self-proclaimed hustler who, quote, did what he had to do. And what he felt he had to do was begin romantic relationships with wealthy older men for monetary gain. In 1983, he began working as a handyman for a real estate tycoon in Bel Air. The men became lovers, and the wealthy older man provided Van Sickle with a cushy life. When the relationship ended, Van Sickle beat his former lover with a hammer, tied him up, robbed him, and stole his Mercedes. Van Sickle did plead guilty to assault with a deadly weapon, and he went to jail. But just a few years later, in 1988... Van Sickle was charged with attempted murder. However, his victim failed to appear in court, and so the charges were dropped. The following year, he was arrested for selling drugs and was sentenced to four years in prison, serving some of that time after he met Larry. Larry didn't seem to care about Van Sickle's past. He, too, had spent time in jail, so they had that in common. (sighs) But the romance between the men ran very hot and cold. One day, Larry would be buying Van Sickle a Corvette. The next, Van Sickle would wrap a telephone cord around Larry's neck, trying to strangle him during an argument. Oh, my gosh. Larry called the cops on Van Sickle, and he was sent back to prison. But while he was in there, Larry sent him a color TV, a case of oysters, and other foods that James liked. As soon as Van Sickle was out of prison, he was back in Larry's life and back at his job at the theater. Van Sickle even threatened Larry's cat, Sir Purity, no. in order to get things out of Larry. Larry was paying all of Van Sickle's bills. 
He would even send David, the other projectionist, on errands to make these bill payments for Van Sickle. Sometimes, though, Larry would ask David to stay late, saying that James was in one of his moods again and he didn't feel safe there alone with him. David warned Larry multiple times that he needed to stay away from Van Sickle, that not only was he a threat to Larry, but also to the theater. And this became abundantly clear when one evening Van Sickle walked in with two men. They threatened Larry and demanded he give them all the money in the place. After this incident, Larry got a restraining order against Van Sickle. He changed the locks and he began keeping a cell phone next to his bed in case he needed to call the police in the middle of the night. At this point, he genuinely feared for his life. Sure. Larry assured David that James would not be back. Several months went by without incident. It was great. But then James started calling the theater. The next thing you know, he's back at his job as a projectionist. It's while detectives are digging into Van Sickle's past that the friend of Christian Rodriguez calls the police and tells them his friend has just confessed to this murder. So good on him for calling. Also, LAPD was offering a $25,000 reward for information, so that did sweeten the deal. not too shabby. When investigators looked into Christian Rodriguez, they still couldn't understand why he would want Larry dead, but they learned that he was a teenager, his girlfriend or wife, I think it might have been at the time, had just had a baby, and he was unemployed at the time. When they looked into his employment history, they found that he had once worked at R&D Lighting in Redondo Beach, California. And in their investigation, they'd come across another person who had once worked at R&D Lighting in Redondo Beach. Matt, can you guess who that person was? Would it be James Van Sickle? It sure would. Mm. It was also around the same time that another person had seen the America's Most Wanted episode and recognized Van Sickle. Remember, he gave an interview on that show being like, I don't know who could have done this. I can't believe it. Yada, yada, Uh yada. That person came forward stating that Van Sickle had reached out to him months prior inquiring about a contract killing. Ultimately, this person decided not to do the hit, but he did become an informant for the detectives. Again, that $25,000 reward was pretty enticing. Uh Got people talking. So this informant agrees to work with investigators to try and get a confession out of Van Sickle. Within an hour, this guy calls James while all the detectives are there. And he says, hey, I saw you on America's Most Wanted and I know you were behind the murder. I want 10 grand or I'm turning you in. So Van Sickle's like, totally, I'll get you the money. Don't wrap me out. Whoa. Van Sickle then calls the detectives and says that they need to unfreeze that account because he needs money to live on. So detectives are like, sure, totally. They get the account unfrozen. Van Sickle walks to the bank, withdraws $10,000. And as he's leaving the bank, there is a caravan of plainclothes officers following him. At least eight cars. <laughs> oh, my gosh. They already had the informant in place at Van Sickle's residence wearing a wire. They told him, hey, we need you to get Van Sickle to make a confession that he hired this hit. Van Sickle arrives, the informant confronts him, and Van Sickle starts talking. As soon as they got the confession, officers moved in and arrested him. Down at the station, despite that they have him on a recording stating he hired someone to kill Larry, he denied everything. Said he was being framed. James. 
Detectives were like, uh-huh, sure. Well, we're just going to keep you here anyway. Then they turned their focus towards Rodriguez. Once they got an address for him, they had a surveillance team watching his place. And as soon as he got into his car to go somewhere, they started following him. It seemed he knew he was being followed because he starts making all these random turns like he was Mm -hmm. trying to lose them. And that's when officers were like, we've got to move in now. So they essentially blocked his vehicle in with their cars and captured him. Once Rodriguez was down at the police station, he confessed everything. He stated that Van Sickle had offered him $25,000 to kill Larry Austin and an additional 5000 to kill Mary Giles so that what? it would look like a robbery gone yeah. wrong. The fact that Van Sickle had no problem having not only Larry killed, but also Mary, oh this 19-year-old who's just there to sell yeah. popcorn and candy just so that it would look like a robbery. It shows you just how cold and callous this guy is. Van Sickle told Rodriguez that he would be the right person for the job since he had no criminal record and no one would suspect him. And with no job and a new baby at home, Rodriguez needed money. Oh, Rodriguez. And that was the thing. He had no violence in his record. A couple of misdemeanors, but like nothing. And he threw it all away. However, Van Sickle never paid him. So Rodriguez was a bit pissed about it, which is why he had no problem telling detectives the extent of Van Sickle's involvement. Both men pleaded not guilty. (laughs) What? Right? What? And their trial was held in 1999. And Mary Giles was the star witness. She, like I said, is really the hero of this whole story. She was very matter-of-fact in her testimony. She also showed her scar, which was massive Uh from where she was shot. Both men were found guilty of first-degree murder, and both were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Good. The theater has changed hands several times since Larry's passing. First, a young man by the name of Charlie Lustman bought the place despite never having seen a silent movie in his life. But he was determined to keep the theater going, breathe new life into it. He brought in more people. He attracted a younger crowd. And he realized that in order to profit off of it, he needed to start renting the theater out for events. He began making a fortune off of events. Celebrities like Alanis Morissette, Bruce Springsteen, and David Bowie were all known to flock to that theater for music release parties. Johnny Depp rented the place out for a private screening for oh, himself wow. and future wife Vanessa at the time. And that's this is around the time period where I went to it. I attended an event there where a co-worker of mine had rented the place out to propose to his girlfriend. He made his own silent film where he was like where he had a ring yeah. and loses it. So the whole film is him running around trying to find it. And then at the end he does, and the words come up on the screen, Will you marry me? Charlie Lustman had done what none of his predecessors had been able to do, which was find a way to make the theater profitable. Mm -hmm. Though this meant that the silent movie screenings were fewer and far between. Then Charlie was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer, and he decided to sell. There was a group interested in buying the place and keeping it going as a movie theater, though they showed both silence and talkies, uh, so it wasn't just a silent theater. And they did continue renting it out for events. This group came to be known as the Cinna family. Barf. Barf. 
who took over the space in 2007. With an advisory board that included big names like Brie Larson, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and J.N. Mark Duplass, Duplass, as well as financial backing from stars like Robert Downey Jr., it seemed that the Cine family had what it took to not only keep the theater running, but take it to the next level. However, the programming they built all came crashing down when allegations of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and even rape began to circulate. Employees complained of a toxic work environment where staff members, particularly the females, were subjected to mistreatment, including violent assaults that occurred in the theater offices and at events at the hands of two high-ranking men within the organization. Cool, cool, cool. Employees spoke of a work environment that discouraged staff members from reporting these incidents, stating that a lot of the behavior went unchecked because the company lacked structure and accountability. In 2017, the board of directors permanently shut down the Cine family and dissolved the board. Now a company known as Brain Dead Studios occupies the space and operates it as an art house cinema. And as far as I can tell, there's nothing shady about them. That's good. With such a historical building and so much darkness surrounding it, you can bet there have been some reported hauntings. Oh, uh, yeah. Some people have claimed to see a large red blood stain appear on the lobby floor and then vanish. Other moviegoers have reported that while they were watching a movie, they suddenly felt a cold chill and a hand brush against them. People have said they've seen orbs circling in front of their face when they're there. Employees have stated that up on the second floor, they have felt a hand grab them, only to turn around and see that the room is empty. Ooh, I don't like that. <laughs> you don't like to be grabbed by ghosts? No, thank you. Weird. Hard pass. Ghost Adventures did an episode there, and at one point the crew members all sit in the theater seats while they're filming, and you hear this kind of creaking sound over and over. So they turn the lights on and find that one of the seats on the aisle had been pushed down, and they tested it, and that creaking sound only happened when a seat was being pushed down. But no one had come in, and no one was sitting there. Weird. But perhaps the weirdest thing to happen occurred when Charlie Lustman was running the theater. He decided that as a tribute to Larry, he would show the film Sunrise on the anniversary of the murder. Sunrise was Larry's favorite silent movie and was also the one to be screened the Uh night he was killed. So Charlie got a big crowd in for that night. The house was packed. And when they started playing the film, it was getting torn up in the gate like it wasn't running properly. And the film stopped. David Slaughter, who is back as the projectionist, turns off the projector and is like, Charlie, what's going on? And Charlie's like, ah, try it again. We got to get this thing working. David turns the projector back on and it was fine. And the movie played smoothly. When the movie ended, several people approached Charlie saying, how'd you do that? We don't like it when you mess with us. And he was like, what are you talking about? And they said, how did you make Larry's face appear on the (gasps) screen? What? Several witnesses claimed that when the film stopped running for those couple of seconds, Larry's image appeared on screen like it was like it was burned into the screen. Oh, my Lord. And I also just have to say, this was not the episode I was going to do for this week. I had a whole other one planned, but it's it's a much bigger case. and I just didn't have time Uh for the amount of time I had this week. So at the last minute, I changed it to this one. It had been on my list for a while. And I started writing the episode last Wednesday. 
And it wasn't until the end of the day, like I was getting ready to turn my computer, shut my computer down. I just happened to look at the date on the calendar at the bottom of my screen. And it was January 17th, (gasps) the anniversary of Larry's murder. Oh my gosh. And I wasn't even going to do this episode. It was just like a weird thing. And then I didn't know where else to put this in the episode, but before he was caught, James Van Sickle actually planned Larry's funeral. And tons of people showed up. Lots of people wanted to pay tribute to Larry. And Van Sickle was a pallbearer. He even ordered the headstone, which underneath Larry's name read The Silent Master. And he hired someone to sing Frank Sinatra's My Way. This is the man that had him killed. Wow. Just wild. And wild. Aside from, Mer- uh, from America's Most Wanted, he was on hard copy. He was on the local news just like pretending to be all shocked and like, how could this happen? And the whole time, he, he knows that it. he's the one that wow. he did it. Yeah. Wild. Wow. And that is the case. People are not okay. No, they're not. <laughs> but you know who is okay? You. Because you oh. filled it at the last minute. I, I, this was a great story. I knew nothing about this. It yeah, was it's wild. Fun. Yeah, if, if you're in LA, I mean, the building is still there. Yeah, it yeah. looks much different now because obviously the signage has changed and all of that. But, uh, yeah, definitely worth stopping by if, uh, you have the opportunity. Very cool. And you can let us know your thoughts in this episode by leaving your comments on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Horwood Podcast. You can shoot us an email at Horwood Podcast at gmail.com. And you can be like Renata and possibly get your little February goodie in the mail if you sign up on Patreon at... Patreon.com slash Horwood Podcast. I like that. That was a little Will Arnett-esque. Hey, it's Will Arnett for Horwood. <laughs> I like Thanks it. Thanks for listening. Yes, thank you for listening, everybody. Don't do murder. That's Don't it. do murders. <laughs> Don't do murders. Thank you.